Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Bill Campbell. We talk about Body by Science, a new project that he's been working on and I've had the pleasure of contributing to, which I think a lot of you will find interesting. And we also talk about a new study on diet breaks on trained females and whether or not this had any benefits in terms of maintaining their resting metabolic rate and any other outcomes in terms of dieting psychology and things like this it was a fantastic discussion where we dig into a lot of different things and talk about kind of the evidence as a whole and how maybe we might go about practically programming these things and if you want to learn more about how maybe the people at revive stronger program you can check out some of the presentations we have on sale over on our website you might not have noticed we have a shop you can buy merch you can buy presentations you can buy all sorts over there maybe check it out if you're interested in learning about that sort of thing but without further ado let's get into the show cheers guys hi guys welcome to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and today i have dr bill campbell back on the show and we're going to be digging into some really interesting topics here including diet breaks uh, there's going to be a recent published study it's actually not quite published yet and bill gave me the honor of being able to kind of review look over that and kind of so we can talk about that in some detail and what his makeaways might be uh, but also we're going to touch on something that i've recently had the honor of being able to contribute to which is uh, bill's new project which is the body by science it's a monthly kind of research review uh, and i think some of the audience will be aware of some of the other ones that are out there at the moment particularly like uh, mass which is obviously uh, a really great one out there too but this one's a little bit different and and yeah, I had the honor of contributing to two articles, which I'm really excited to see what people think of that. And that was time-restricted feeding and kind of detraining periods, which I think are two very interesting topics too. But Bill, without kind of me digging into it too far, what what is Body by Science for those that maybe want to know kind of what makes it different and, and what was your kind of goal and objective with it? Yeah, so the thank you for having me on, by the way. Um, for sure. Uh, thank you students. for being here. <laughs> Yes, yes. My my students are often telling me about what you're doing, what you're up to, because I don't have a lot of time to to stay on top of everything. So anyway, you've got many fans here. Oh, amazing! Um, in particular, in my own lab. So so thank you for, again for the invitation. Uh, so the the body by science. It's a research review, and it's literally a research review such that what I'm doing is I'm taking two studies. Usually they're recent studies, but they don't have to be. They could be like a landmark study that may have been done three years ago or, or last year. They're the studies that I think have influenced or that will influence the way that physique coaches or the way that people who are very serious about their exercise and nutrition kind of live that lifestyle. So again, very recent research. Or those very impactful studies that seem to have, you know, shifted the dial on how or, or what the evidence would say we should be doing. And more specifically, I'm summarizing two articles per month, and the it's it's a has a very narrow focus. So it's 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 laser focused on building muscle or losing body fat, and in some cases both of those things. So I don't get into any health issues. I don't really get into performance issues. It's, it is laser focused on physique. So that's, the, that's where the name came from, Body by Science. And it, it's, that name means a lot to me because I actually polled my followers and I got all of their feedback. And so my, 
my, my audience actually came up with that name. And I loved it. Like I was worried. I was telling my wife, like, well, what if my audience chooses something that I just don't like, like that, that would bother me because I'm going <laughs> to like what I, what, what I'm putting out there. But fortunately we got it down to like, I think we went from like 12 to six to three. And at, once we got down to three, I felt, I felt, okay, I can live with any of these. So that's where the name came from. And then I, I think what may set mine apart, and, and I think we need to do to, to do justice and mention some of the other research reviews that are out there. And I haven't, I haven't, I don't have a lot of knowledge of the other ones. So what I think sets mine apart, um, and again, I, I, I could be wrong about this, but I'm bringing in outside experts, people like high level physique coaches, registered dietitians, uh, medical professionals like physicians, other researchers. And I'm bringing them in because I review the research. Again, I, I'm, this is what I do in my life every day. I'm a researcher. I conduct studies. But I want to be able to provide the subscribers to this with, okay, I get that here's the summary of the research, but how would I apply this to my own life or to the lives of my clients? So that's where you come in because you were one of the first people that I, that I asked, hey, I, I said, Steve, would you be willing to be an expert on, you know, on, on this publication? And, and thankfully, you said yes. So and, and I think, in my opinion, that's the most valuable piece of the Body by Science Research Review. Not that I want to minimize me summarizing it, but if you can't apply what you're learning or if you can't apply the research, well, then it's, you're wasting your time. It's, it's literally, you might as well be reading a diary or something. So the other thing that I, that I like about this is my experts. And again, I don't have too many issues finished at this point, and we haven't even launched yet. We'll be launching very soon. Um, but oftentimes what I think, oh, this is how I would do this. Somebody like you puts a new thought into them like, wow, I've, I've never thought of that. So I really hope it will serve as a valuable resource to, I think there's two audiences, coaches and fitness enthusiasts, people who are just very serious about their exercise and nutrition. Yeah, I think uh, from what I know of the, the two that come to mind when I think of research review, actually three, but they're, they're all quite different, I think anyway, but it's mass, uh, there's weightology with James Krieger, and then examine.com have their kind of research review and examine is very much more based around supplementation and like health, but they do go into like some hypertrophy and they're very broad, actually, they cover a lot of things. And then obviously mass is, like, it goes into the strength a lot, it goes into health and supplementation quite a bit too. And then weightology, um, I think James also covers quite a lot of kind of similar aspects. So yours is like even more like hyper-focused than all of those, which is really cool. And then you do get that really broad of like, okay, so this is what the science is maybe saying, but what are people actually doing and seeing in practice? Because I don't know, there's probably been studies out there that a lot of coaches have looked at and been like, eh, <laughs> like, I don't know, that just completely counter to my experience of what I've been doing. And then you can, it might influence them to try something else or they can share their viewpoint. So I think it's really cool that you've got kind of, uh, and it sounds like you've got quite a diverse group of people as well. It's not like, I don't know, everyone's the same as me. It's like lots of coaches and some people I hadn't even heard of, or I know you are thinking of bringing in to kind of have a look at it, which I think is really powerful as well. Yeah, that's, that's the goal. Um, I would love a diversity of opinion and I don't know if it will happen, but I would love for there to be disagreement even like, hey, here's what I think. And then I, in your case, 
Um, I know we didn't disagree on the studies, but you you've made me think more deeply about some of the applications. But I would I if somebody disagrees with my interpretation of a study, I, I, that's very valuable because uh, what what you and I know is that's life. Like that's life in the research world. It is not black and white. And I know a lot of people think, oh, it's a research study and now it's fact. Well, the data is fact, but how it can be applied and even how you can interpret that data and consider how the study was designed, there's a lot of gray area. So I don't make any, I, I'm, I would not shy away from the gray area at all. And one thing, the issue that you are contributing to, which is, by the way, will be the, the first issue. I'm, I'm having one issue that's free just so people can see if it's something they would like. And then the next issue, which is like issue number one, which is the one you contributed to, one of those articles was on time-restricted feeding. And that study, that changed my thinking on time-restricted feeding. I, it, it, I mean, that, and that's not, that's a big, that's a big statement for me to say, because I, I had one opinion, then I saw that study and I'm like, wow, okay. So that, again, that influenced, is it, that study alone influenced me, it kind of moved my thinking and how I would even coach people if I were coaching people in the future. I guess that's uh, when you're truly evidence-based, that's what you do. You kind of move with the majority because there's always, like people will say, there's always a study to prove like whatever you want because there's always that outlier study, whatever, whatever reason that's there, but it's kind of you move with the majority. So I know, and, and there's been various things, I don't know, volume might even be one that springs to mind in terms of like for training. It just seems to be, oh, if, like as long as you can recover from it more does seem to be providing some great benefits there uh so no that's really interesting and especially it's great to have for even someone like yourself who obviously is very aware of all of this it's like all oh, these you can still be learning something new and find some new takeaways to make the kind of your body by science even better <laughs> through using the yes. science which is great yeah and, and, and in fact probably for two or three weeks after that i actually adopted Oh, the wow. time restricted feeding because I wanted this, you know, and I'm, I'm naturally close to that anyway. I don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that it was a 180. I usually don't eat breakfast or real early in the morning, but what I did for these two or three weeks, I specifically didn't eat until noon. And then I stopped eating at eight just to see how it would work for me. Again, I wasn't really, and I never really cared about the times, but so I not only did it change my thinking, I actually said, hey, I want to do this because, again, that's that's how I learn by, by doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so the listeners know, can they get hold of the free one that you're like, can they get hold of that? And who contributed yes. to it? And uh, maybe we can provide a link in the description so they can get that. Yes. Yeah, so just go to my website. That's BillCampbellPhD.com. You can you have to join my email list and then I will send you the inaugural issue, which is a free issue. Uh, my experts in that one were Lauren Conlon and Paul Revelia. So those are my experts for, for that issue. And man, I'm working so many issues ahead. Um, we looked at processed foods. You're probably familiar with that study. So I summarized the study. Does processed foods hurt your gains? Does it, is it harder to, to lose body fat when you're having processed foods? And then the other one actually was a training volume study in that in the in the free issue so yes uh, billcampbellphd.com will give you free access to that amazing and hopefully the audience are aware of them because they've uh, both been on the podcast as well over the last like years so that's really cool as well uh so something actually that i think is going to be interesting to talk about and again i think it's one that maybe uh 
different coaches of different opinions on and uh, even different researchers and people at the top of the kind of fitness and well bodybuilding scene even and kind of body like muscle gain fat loss scene have different opinions on diet breaks and uh, you've recently had this study come out which uh, we we're just talking off air how Menno was involved with it also Sarah Bishop who was recently on the show and Eric Trexler who's been on the show and I'm sure the guys are aware of who that is so this was the effect of intermittent diet breaks during a 25% energy restriction on body composition and resting metabolic rate in resistance trained females which is pretty unique uh, so far well it is unique so far and it's a randomized control trial so i thought maybe bill would be good for the audience just as a refresher for them kind of what happens some of the negative aspects of dieting like what happens when we diet um because obviously it sets up kind of the picture for maybe why we might want to try diet breaks and what we hope they might provide so what what are some of the negative consequences of when we diet bill yeah, there's actually a, a lot of potential negative outcomes from dieting. And let me say, this this will be published. It's already accepted for publication. We presented this data last year at the International Society of Sports Nutrition. So some of this data is already publicly available, but it will be published in the Journal of Human Kinetics probably within the next two months. That's what I'm led to believe. And when we go back to what 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 do diet breaks offer? Well, they they... In theory, they help stop the negative aspects of dieting. So what are some of those? Well, one that everybody's familiar with is just that it gets harder and harder and harder to lose body fat when you're dieting. Um, you reach plateaus. You're, you're working hard or you're working even harder, and your, your body just doesn't respond like it did during the early parts of your diet. One of the primary theories as to why that happens is because of a decrease in resting energy expenditure, and also to a lesser extent, um, a decrease in NEAT, but that's very hard to measure, but theoretically that makes sense. So as you're dieting week after week after week, your metabolic rate starts to go down as your body weight goes down. So what used to be a 500 calorie deficit may now only be a 200 calorie deficit because your resting energy expenditure is decreased. The other things that are that are negative is just um, moods. Um, when you're hungry, your 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 psychological out, outlook is not as good. There is you develop anabolic resistance, so your resistance training stimulus is less effective than what it is compared to a non-dieting or even a, a maintenance calorie environment. So as you have all of these negative aspects that are associated with the diet, and I think it's also important to note, the longer the diet lasts, the more likely these negative outcomes or these negative associations will manifest. And the more severe the caloric deficit, the more likely these negative outcomes will present themselves. So the theory with the diet break is instead of continuing on for month after month after month of a caloric deficit, we literally stop, take a break from dieting, and you, al you allow yourself to go back to pre-diet calories. So there is still a level of, at least in the research, there's still a level of control uh, in terms of you're not able to eat anything that you want. So you go back to maintenance calorie levels. Now, the reality is that could be a slight surplus because if your metabolic rate has changed and you've lost body weight. So 
recognizing what used to be maintenance calories may now be a slight surplus. And the, the thought is with the diet break that it will, for lack of a better word, reset your resting energy expenditure, bring that back up, allow your, your, the, the stimulus of resistance training to, to be more powerful again, as you're, you know, as, as you, as you're taking this break from the negative aspects of a caloric deficit. And then we go, okay, so these, th here's the theory of this. Well, what does the research say? Well, there's only a handful of studies. Uh, the, the one that got everybody excited, including myself, was that Matador study uh, that was in obese males. And, and those results were, were phenomenal. Like it, it um, I guess, admittedly, I got a little carried away. I'm like, wow, this is great. Not, um, not necessarily critiquing it as, as much as I would um, otherwise. And, and now we have, well, of course, in our space, we always have to ask, well, what about people that are resistance training? Well, we have a study out of Australia. Dr. Uh, Jackson Payos published a study within the last year, a really, really well-designed study. And we can talk about that, uh, get into details about that one. And now my study would be the second study in a resistance trained population. Uh, one thing that would make my study a little different is we, we limited ours to resistance trained females. So our study was all females. The other resistance training diet break study included both males and females. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think everyone got excited by the Matador study <laughs> because the results of it were fantastic. But it's like you said, uh, you know, it's why we we have people like yourself. And if you don't, I don't know, have that element of understanding research that it's it's important who it's done on. <laughs> like the number of like I don't know pseudoscientists who pull out papers done on all sorts of different species <laughs> um, of animal, yeah. and they're, they're not even humans, and they try and prove their point. It's like ah, but if you apply that to a human, it's not quite right. So even within humans, like the fact that they're obese and maybe not even resistance trained, therefore is going to have a dramatic impact. And actually, I'd complete for for whatever reason, I had forgotten that Jackson had. Uh, done his study um, because I think was it am I right in thinking when you started out doing this study you would have been the first it's just then Jackson kind of came out with his after or is that wrong in me even thinking that um that may have been the case I don't know I know our another difference was ours is the first study to ever have a supervised resistance training study right. in this space um uh, that's that makes it I mean, that's a lot of effort um, to supervise this. And again, when, when you don't supervise the training bouts, you always question well, how many did they miss? What was the level of their intensity? So we, we had all of those controls. As you mentioned, Sarah Bishop, she was on my research team at the time. She was in the lab with these, with, with these female subjects. Um, yeah, I don't. Now, I will say, because of COVID and, and for, due to some other work-related issues, this study has been finished for well over a year, and it's just now reaching the point of, of yeah. publication. Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. I think, yeah, the resistance training, if I'm right, they said at least six months training and the average was, I think it said uh, two plus years and they had an average of 25% body fat, which people might hear and they think that's high, but 
were females so we're not females but i mean as in the the uh the people involved were females which is actually fairly lean for a female for sure and then like you said they were given a diet coach and you established maintenance calories beforehand so it was like very rigorously done as if i don't know i was taking my own client through it it, it felt like that sort of level of everyone was very much going through this kind of system so what did you measure um when you were going through this what what kind of aspects uh, were you hoping to and look at and then what were the results of those yeah, two, two broad aspects, uh, body composition outcomes and, and a few psychological parameters around um, eating and attitudes towards eating, like hunger, uh, disinhibition. So uh, body composition and psychological eating questionnaires. We did not do a performance measure in this study. Oh, the other thing that we did, we were able to, and I, I want to make sure I thank um, Madeline Seidler was my research coordinator. She, she coordinated the whole study. And Menno Henselman's provided funding for the study. And one of the nice things about that, that allowed us to buy home scales for all of the subjects. So one of the things that I always get asked from people who, who are new to diet breaks is, well, how much weight will I gain when I take a week or two of a diet break and, you know, in the past, it was always, well, it depends. Or, you know, some people gain, some people lose, which is true, but we were able to document exactly with every single subject, what happened to their body weight when they went back to maintenance calories. Um, right before, before I just share the results, let me also say that our study was a six week diet study. So one group, just dieted at a 25% caloric deficit for six weeks straight. They had no diet breaks. The other group, the diet break group, they dieted for two weeks at, at the same 25% deficit. And then they took a one-week diet break. Then they dieted again for two weeks. They took a second one-week diet break. And then they finished with two additional weeks of dieting. So both groups were equal in terms of six weeks of approximately a 25% caloric deficit, um, aiming for 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. But they were different in the sense that it took one group eight weeks to complete six weeks of dieting because they had the two-week diet break. So at the end of the study, what we found in terms of body composition, which is, which is the primary variables that I'm interested in, well, there was no difference. Both groups lost a significant amount of body fat. Both groups maintained their muscle mass. And resting energy expenditure really didn't change. In fact, it actually went up just a little bit in, the, in this study. So no differences with body composition. And that, if you compare what we found to, and let me also say, um, I think we may have talked about this in our prior prior podcast, but my lab had recently done a diet refeed study, which is in the same realm of diet breaks. That it's all under this umbrella of nonlinear dieting. And in that study, we actually found significant improvements from taking a break on the weekends from dieting. So now we just kind of extended this to more of a traditional diet break. And this time we found no differences. Now we had a different population and I'm happy to talk about why this may not, why these two studies weren't equal in terms of outcomes, but the lack of a body composition benefit in the diet break group 
was really the same finding that the Australian Dr. Peos's out of study found found no differences in resting energy expenditure, no differences in maintaining muscle mass, no differences in body fat between the two groups. Again, everybody loses body fat in these studies because they're dieting. But if, if you take the Matador study, which made people, including myself, become optimistic on, oh, diet breaks really, really set the stage for and improved longer adaptations to the diet in terms of more fat loss, um, they didn't really do too much with in the Matador study with um, muscle mass because they weren't resistance training. But we were, we did not come close to finding anything like the Matador study with an advantage to fat loss. Uh, there, there was literally no difference. Um, I also say that on average during the diet break weeks, they gained about a half a pound. Uh, we actually did it, and I don't have the study in front of me, um, we, we did it for diet break one and diet break two. And I want to say it was about an average of a half a pound or, you know, like 0.25 kgs um, over that time. But even if you did gain weight on average that little bit, it didn't have any effect at the end of the study. Now, you look at that, and again, I'm, I would like to, when we're done with the psychological part, um, I would like to say why I think we found what we found. But the one finding that we did observe was in the psychological aspect. And I, I, I need to say that I am not an exercise psychologist, so I'm not able to cite prior literature on this, but I, am, I can say what we found. We, we gave our subjects something known as the three-factor eating inventory, or three-factor eating questionnaire, and it was later named the eating inventory. And there are three items with this, and this is a validated hunger questionnaire. So it looks at three things. It looks at hunger. It looks at, I can't remember the second thing. And then the third thing it looks at is disinhibition. So hunger, oh, restraint, I'm sorry, restraint, how, how, how are you able to restrain yourself from eating? So out of those three measures, there was no difference in hunger levels. There was no difference in restraint between the diet break and the continuous dieting group. There was a significant difference in the measure called disinhibition. Now, disinhibition, it's a double negative, and I always struggle how do you explain this? So I actually wrote it down. <laughs> it's the tendency to overeat in the presence of highly palatable foods or during a negative emotional state, which if you're dieting, <laughs> sometimes negative emotional states are more prevalent. So the now you have to ask, okay, which group did better? And this was a significant difference. The diet break group they actually had lowered their disinhibition scores. So they were less likely to overeat in the presence of highly palatable foods. So the foods that taste great. The other group, the continuous group, they actually went in the other direction. They increased their disinhibition scores, which means that they were more likely to overeat in the presence of those foods. Now, our study was six weeks. As you, as we mentioned earlier, the longer and longer you diet, the harder and harder it becomes. And, and some people would also say in, the, in this space of, of, of nutrition psychology, your willpower gets less and less over time. Yeah. So it's possible if we had a longer duration 
that maybe there would have been some body composition outcomes. Now, one more aspect to this was what did the other study in resistance train um, subjects find? Surprisingly, almost the same thing. Again, no differences in body comp and just like ours. They found two significantly different findings with eating questionnaires. One was hunger, and the other one I think was desire to eat. And both of those favored the diet break group. So that's now two studies looking at resistance trained people, both having a positive impact on the psychology of how they're viewing food or their propensity to overeat, their levels of hunger, according to the Australian study, and their levels of a higher level of a desire to eat. And what I, what I, what I, what obviously what you love as a scientist is that you, you start to see, okay, if one, step, one lab finds this and then another lab reports this and then another lab, then you get to the point where there's a consensus. And I'll say one more thing that I, want, I would love to get your feedback on, on all of this, but in particular, our study. The, the, the fact that the subjects were allowed to take a diet break and in theory, now we didn't monitor their exact foods, but they were, I, I would assume they probably ate foods that they enjoy more because they had more calories. And by doing that, they are now less hungry for the next few weeks after. They didn't have this elevated desire to eat. They were less likely, according to our data, to be disinhibited or to have a tendency to overeat when dieting. So that makes sense to me what the diet break offers in terms of those psychological outcomes. So now if I can be the podcast host, what are your <laughs> thoughts? What, how do you interpret this as a, as an elite level coach? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, that's very humbling to, to be called that, but uh, it's, I thought it was really well done, very interesting. And uh, I actually, it does really reflect well on Jackson's as well. And like you said, I think that's good because it, it starts kind of moving us in a direction where more kind of lines are pointing in the same direction and it did seem to be that kind of psychological benefit that it was providing and I was actually going to ask in terms of the food and the, the kind of the way you were taking people through dietary was that like a flexible dieting type of approach in terms of achieving macros so they had the same in their diet break they didn't have any like I don't know if they had guidance during that period of time just because I think a lot of people think, oh, when I eat more palatable food, it drives up like a dopamine response and I get that food reward and it can lead people to binging. But quite clearly, it, it didn't do it in this case. And in fact, they could. And I think some people struggle to get back to the diet afterwards. But again, in this case, it didn't seem to happen with that. So I guess if you were to spread this over like 12 weeks, 18 weeks, these people taking the diet breaks can have much more sustainable chance and i would imagine that's where you're going to start seeing the changes like you mentioned in the kind of physiology in terms of muscle mass retention and that sort of thing and something i thought particularly was interesting you probably remember this was um talking about the volume that they were doing and how it was matched but because they were over eight weeks versus six weeks it meant they were doing more in their weekly kind of sessions which i thought was very interesting in terms of kind of obviously if the other group could have done just as much volume in those weeks and they could have it summed up more in the eight weeks, would that have changed the results? I don't know. So I found that interesting as well. Yeah, that was a, no matter what you decide to do with volume, you could, you, you, you solve one problem and then you create another. Yes. So <laughs> the problem we solved was over the entire study duration, they all did the same volume, but on a weekly basis, 
the diet break group was doing less because they, they had two more weeks. So they actually had less volume per week than the continuous dieting group. Um, I ultimately, I don't, it wasn't like there was a huge difference in the, the set when we also yeah. used a set volume approach, which I love that for bodybuilding and just in coaching. Cause it's so simple and it's validated by the science. Just count your hard sets. Um, yeah, yeah. It's that, 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 that was one thing that I remember we struggled over. How do we want to handle this? Um, yeah. And then my only other thought was whether or not what your thoughts are, even if I don't know uh, the way I'm looking into it or thinking about it is that disinhibition, you can almost, you could have it with your clients and almost you could score it, or you can just with the way that we coach, we get like video diaries. So you can just almost pick up the fact that they're talking more about like, I don't know, delicious foods or what have you. And then you can almost, <laughs> it's like, I don't know, it gets to like this threshold where you're like, right now we take the diet break or what have you. Like it's, it's kind of resets those values a little bit so we can keep going versus I don't know, you hit the binge because you've kind of meet that threshold and you go into like the point where it's just, there's no return. So I thought that was really cool to know that that's kind of something that you can use this. And it looks like, uh, it feels like another tool in the tool belt uh, rather than anything else. And I, I would be interested to know what your thoughts in terms of obviously the results you got with your refeed versus this one, whether or not it was the population that you think was the factor that made the difference there in terms of the results that you saw. Yeah. Um, one, l let me, let me first go back to the diet. Let me focus on the diet break study. And then I'll just talk about potentially why we found what we found the differences with, with my two studies all under this umbrella of nonlinear dieting. Sure. So the, the diet break, what, what we now see is, and, and again, just pairing this with the Australian study, there's no harm in doing a diet break, but it's not causing people to gain more body fat. We do have to be aware, though, as a coach, some people are going to struggle getting back on a diet after eating at maintenance calories. Or maybe some people will struggle with just, main, just, just not going over and above maintenance calories. So I do think that's the art of coaching, even though the average findings in these studies didn't don't support that clearly there's individual responses um just like in our diet break week some of our subjects lost body weight some of them gained body weight overall average was a you know, very small amount of body weight during the diet break weeks so i'll 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 talk about why 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 don't why didn't we find body composition, favorable body composition outcomes. Let's presume for a moment that diet breaks should do that. Well, one thing was, I think the utility for a diet break is much more val valid when the length of the diet is long or the severity of the caloric deficit is high. We accomplished neither of those things. Our subjects were not, again, only dieting for six weeks. Yes, they lost a significant amount of body fat, but their caloric deficits were 25%, not 40%. So these were not bikini athletes. They were not physique athletes. I think, in my opinion, the utility of a diet break, well, let me say it like this. What are diet breaks supposed to help? They're supposed to help suppression of metabolic rates. They're supposed to help with the loss of muscle mass. They're supposed to help with body fat 
plateaus. We didn't have, we did not diet our subjects hard enough or long enough to induce those problems. So in, in essence, for lack of a better phrase, we were, we were implementing a fix for something that was not even close to being broken. So our design was lacking. Now, again, it's, they're still valid in what we did, but I don't, you can't expect a diet break to, to provide any value if you're not getting any of these negative outcomes with dieting. So that, that's, that's my main outcome. And we talked about that in the discussion of our paper. The, the, utility has, the utility is such that there has to be some damage done for a diet break to have an effect. And maybe they won't have an effect. That, that's, that's perfectly, well, we know that they have, we, based on our data in the Australian study, we know that they have an effect on psychological um, hunger questionnaires. But in terms of body composition, it's also possible they just don't that they just aren't effective in this population. Um, but again, my hunch is a bodybuilder dieting for a show, I think there's going to be a lot more positive potential than in a population that's just going on a short-term diet and not such that it's severe. Uh, what did we find in the... Uh, can, can, can I jump in? Is that all right? Yes. I don't yeah. want to disrupt your thought, but uh, it's just very interesting hearing you say that because... Practically, that's how I almost use them as well. And I didn't really think about it at the time, but of course, like a six-week diet is a super aggressive diet. Typically, when I implement something like a mini cut, for example, those are very aggressive diets and they're done for four to six weeks, maybe losing a percentage of body weight per week on average, which is quite an aggressive diet for a lot of people. And I tend to say like no refeeds, no diet breaks, like we get in and out. And it's kind of that under the thought that it's a short enough period of time where you're not going to see the big kind of uh, metabolic adaptation in that period of time. So you can kind of get it in and out and then we get back to some more massing and productive kind of being a bit leaner potentially. And then with diet breaks in terms of like the practical application, I tend to use them there is more in a contest prep scenario or longer diet. And I use them in combination with a deload. And typically it might be at the start, like their first block of dieting and the first mesocycle we take three days during the deload and the rest of it or the first like half is dieting and then the second half three days of kind of a diet break and then the next one it might stretch to four or five days and then the next one it's the whole week and then as they get leaner and the diet goes on for longer you're kind of using more and more of these days at least in practical terms and you kind of reference without us talking about it previously i've seen huge success in in that sort of approach um but i know lots of people use them differently but it, it's just interesting to hear you talk through it and that's how i've used it for the last few years uh, for myself and clients Yes. Yeah. And again, that's the art of coaching. You, you see things. Oh, something else. Matador study, Australian study, my study that will be published. No coach. Well, I should. I don't think any good coach is going to say you're going to diet for X number of weeks and then we're going on a diet break. Like, I, I, I think if somebody's continuing to lose body fat and they're not hungry and they're just cruising, I think it would be very foolish to say, oh, it's time for a diet break. Let's put it in. Like, why would you do that? If, if they're cruising, don't, don't stop that momentum. So I think in the real world, coaches are looking at their, the, the feedback, the biofeedback of their clients and then saying, well, here's what I, again, I'm not a coach. Here's how I would do it. I would almost have, or I would have a conversation on the front end that I would agree with my client. Hey, we're going to, we're going to do this diet, whether it's aggressive or conservative. And when we get to the point of non 
uh, where we're not making progress any longer. And again, that's where we would decide we are now going to, that's when we're going to do a diet break. That way the client doesn't, doesn't think, oh, we're panicking. We, we're just throwing in a diet break now. No, no, we agreed about this months ago or weeks ago. So this is all part of the plan. So that's another important methodological difference between how researchers have to do this and how coaches do this. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Yeah, absolutely. It's always, uh, in the, the way I end up setting it up is like I have like maybe a six months planned out in terms of like what we think we're going to do again, you ought to regulate or based off feedback in terms of, well, maybe we push back a deload or what have you. Um, a question actually, this might be, I don't know if this is in your scope bill, but in terms of, I, I don't know if you use deloads, but do you have any concern, say someone was dieting and it was going really well, they come to a deload week. Do you have any concern dieting in a week where you really pull back volume, you pull back the training stimulus, which is promoting kind of uh, muscle protein synthesis and maintenance of muscle, you pull that away and you keep dieting during that week. Do you find, do you feel like there's any issues with potential muscle loss or kind of not as good recovery? I assume not as good recovery because you're not going to get all the carbs and everything that's going to replenish glycogen for the next mesocycle. But that was part of my kind of concern was if we're pulling back volume and intensity for that week, it's only a week, but if we continue a deficit, maybe it's risking some things that we don't kind of want to happen there. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I don't have a research directive on this, but I have an opinion. So the reason for doing a deload is to give somebody a break to kind of resensitize them to the, the resistance training stimulus to help them recover those would be the reasons that I think a, a, a deload would, would be implemented as a training strategy. So if, in my opinion, to then have them diet, you're kind of shortchanging it. Like I would think, no, let, let's go all in on a deload and match that with the nutrition. So I, I, in my opinion, again, just thinking about this on the spot right now, I would not want, I, I think you would, I, I don't think it would be ideal to be dieting during a deload week. Now, of course, this all depends on the, if, if this is somebody preparing for a show and there's three weeks to, to competition day, yeah. that's, that, that, that those are individual scenarios. But generally speaking, I think my philosophy, if I were a coach, if we're taking a break from training or we're reducing the volume and intensity, I actually want to support that with higher calories or at least maintenance calories to kind of make them feel like a, a new person when they come out of this yeah that that's good to i mean it's nice to hear because it aligns with my like uh my my programming in practice so but that's exactly my thoughts in that kind of if you're going to get the best fatigue reduction there's a big amount of kind of uh, fatigue reduction that comes from just being at maintenance and kind of glycogen replenishment leading into that next block so it's like you mentioned having this chat with your client beforehand these are all pre-programmed into if you are having a contest prep it's like okay so we're not probably going to be losing weight this week but hopefully it helps fat loss efficiency down the line. I guess this is uh, something that we haven't got good data to support us in terms of for physique athletes, but maybe there, I don't know if you have work down there, but maybe one day we will have those studies that will reveal a bit more. Yeah. And one thing I'd like once, once our study gets published, because we are reporting individual subject 
weight changes during the two weeks of diet breaks, any coach who's working with a client, let's say a coach wants, believes there's value in a diet break and the subject is apprehensive or the client in this case, they're apprehensive. They can go to our paper and say, hey, you may gain weight during this. You can see here on average, there was, but, but the weight gain on average was small. And in fact, some people actually lost weight, but even that is kind of irrelevant because at the end of the six weeks or the eight weeks, there was no difference. So I think that can really help a coach-client relationship by pointing to our data from this study to say, listen, now we do have to caveat, you have to go to maintenance calories. You, you know, there's not a, a, a cheat day or where you're just, you know, there are no limits to what you can eat. So as long as you're going back to maintenance calories, I'm hoping it's, it's, it would be, you know, it's one of the things that makes me happy about my career. If that helps people who, who desire to lose fat loss and, and implementing a strategy that they would be fearful of, they could rely on our data to say, oh, okay, this is what the evidence suggests what may or may not happen. And I think something else, you, and for those same people, you can use it as um, kind of evidence to suggest that these breaks are going to help you maintain this weight loss long term because of it's kind of that practice at coming to maintenance and that helps people transition then when they are ending a diet like you just keep dieting like you need to come to maintenance or i don't know people listening to this might go into a surplus or whatever but if they've had that experience of oh i get an extra 500 calories what it might be like it isn't kind of like a huge surprise and they're like oh i know how to kind of go about this i have previous experience there too which i think is important because i mean especially gen pop uh people they tend like it's weight loss maintenance is one of the biggest hurdles <laughs> yes and then you were going to talk about so before i interrupted you you were going to i think talk about kind of some of the differences between this and your refeed study and why you thought maybe you, those came about yeah so the, the main difference with the the refeed study what we did was five days of dieting and then two days, the weekends, they increased their calories back to maintenance levels, but all in the form of carbohydrates. So it was a 5-2 deficit to maintenance ratio, but within the week. The diet break was, remember, they dieted for an, at least 14 days or six weeks in the one, but 14 days in a row. So the only thing that makes sense to me is it's, it's, um, and what we found in that refeed study was they didn't, nobody gained muscle mass, but they were able to maintain their dry fat free mass, which was their muscle mass, their, their, their fat free mass, taking out the water component. They were able to maintain that significantly better than the other group. Now, something else that happened, and this is a great kind of a cheat that you can look at when you're, when you're in my world, when you're looking at body composition. You can usually tell what happens to muscle mass or fat-free mass by looking at what happens to resting energy expenditure. So if resting energy expenditure goes up, generally, you if you look, you before you even look, just say, hey, I bet muscle mass or whatever the researchers are calling it, dry, uh, lean soft tissue, fat-free mass, lean body mass. You can usually use that as a proxy for each other because the, the largest, other than body weight, Fat-free mass is the biggest predictor of resting energy expenditure. So in our refeed study, our subjects um, taking these, these refeeds every weekend, they, were, they did lose some, some muscle mass or dry fat-free mass, but they lost significantly less 
than the continuous dieting group. The same thing was seen with resting metabolic rate or resting energy expenditure. They lost a little bit of their metabolic rate, but significantly less than the, the, than the continuous group. And when I say significantly less, compared to baseline levels, there was like a, about an 80 calorie reduction in the continuous group and only about a 40 calorie reduction in resting energy expenditure in the other group. So the only way that I wrap my head around this is for five days, they're in a caloric deficit, but then every two days out of seven, they're out of this deficit, increasing carbs, a lot of carbs to get back to maintenance because we didn't, we told them don't increase fat, keep protein the same. So they're replenishing glycogen. Um, the other thing that carbs do, and this, this goes back to a potential mechanism of, well, let me give a global and then a specific mechanism. So globally, two days out of seven, they're not in a catabolic state. They're able to, they're in maintenance levels and they're able to train more intensely potentially. But now let's go specific. Increasing carbs for two consecutive days should, now we didn't measure insulin levels, but carbs significantly increase insulin production. What does insulin do for body composition? It, it suppresses muscle protein breakdown. It actually, you lose 10 units of muscle without insulin. You might only lose seven with it. So we have multiple studies re, um, reporting this. So mechanistically, maybe the decision to increase carbs a lot for two days, not only are you not in a deficit, but you're increasing insulin, which suppresses muscle protein breakdown. And that's kind of what we saw on the macro scale. They lost less muscle mass, not because they built more muscle, maybe potentially just because they broke down less. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I wonder if part of the, do you think there's anything to do with the resting kind of expenditure is down to different people's adaptations in terms of like a resting heart rate? If, if that can be correlated with it, like if you were measuring someone who their resting energy expenditure really reduced, I would imagine their resting heart rate also reduced quite a lot versus someone else who their resting heart rate maybe maintained a bit higher and their resting energy expenditure was higher. I don't know if there's like, obviously there's, you have your thrifty and spendthrift phenotypes in terms of like uh, metabolic adaptation, whether or not there's a difference there and then whether or not the person who adapts really quickly to a deficit refeeds can help kind of keep this a bit higher and that yeah. can help them. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I, I, I don't only because we didn't assess um, resting heart rate in, yeah. in these, in the, in the study. So I, I wasn't able to do any type of correlation, but I mean, what you're suggesting it's plausible. I mean, it's, it, it makes sense. Um, I just, I can't rely on data to say, yes, that's what, that's what I think happened yeah. in, in, with our subjects. Something I uh, experimented with using weighted apparel during my last contest prep, and I was wearing kind of weight to every kind of kilo. It wasn't every quite like this. I had a five kilo vest put on once I lost five kilos. Once I lost 10 kilos, I put on a 10 kilo weighted vest, and I kind of transitioned to that. And I just noticed my resting heart rate was staying much higher than previous contest preps, which makes sense because I'm kind of yeah. holding this weight on me. And I was obviously my total daily energy expenditure was much higher through that mechanism too. So I was like, oh, maybe there's obviously the more times your heart's beating, the more calories you're burning at, at rest there. So I want, that's where I kind of was building upon this. I wonder if you can use the same kind of tools <laughs> or there's so many fat loss tools now that people are coming out with. So it's very interesting. <laughs> yes. 
but the best one is a caloric deficit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. We try and make that. Pr- it's never going to be easy. It's like building muscle. Uh, you can think of so many different ways to build muscle, but it's not, there's always got to be hard work. Like at the end of the day, you can't train super light, super easy and think to grow muscle. Same with dieting. You're not going to get shredded yeah. glutes and it's going to be easy for you <laughs> unless you're someone completely genetic freak or something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know if you have any final thoughts, Bill, before closing off, or if um, you want to let the listeners know about anything else. But I guess do you have you don't have a final date for when uh, the body by science is coming out. We just have to. I'll make sure to kind of let people know, uh, or they have to be following you over on Instagram. Hopefully, they already are. Yes, I'll, I'll definitely promote it on Instagram. So right now, you can go to my website, BillCampbellPhD.com, get the free inaugural issue. And then issue one, which will be the issue that you are a contributor in, that, that is that everything is pointing towards mid-August as issue number one. And I'm going to release a new issue every month um, um, in the middle of the month. So yeah, I, I can safely say middle of August will be the first issue. But don't don't wait. Go to my website now. See if you like the approach, how you know, the layout, the 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 expertise and how they're interpreting the studies or how they're applying the studies. Um, and then, you know, you that then make a decision. Yeah, I think this would help my practice or my own exercise and nutrition strategies. And then that's amazing. And I, I should recommend it and actually recommend also following Bill. If you're not already on Instagram, you're always putting out really informative. And it's great because I think Instagram it is short kind of format and it's hard to get a lot of education across but through some of your posts the way you set them up is it, it does allow for a bit of at least some chunks of learning which I think is really beneficial but I was going to ask do you have any other research projects in the works or anything you're looking to do in future yeah so we, we did we finished a rapid fat loss study that also happened during COVID and that 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 study we're also um, writing starting to write the manuscript on um, so maybe if I'm invited back, that would be a really good study to talk about. And then we, my lab just finished the largest study we've ever done. This was um, in non-trained or non-resistance trained females. We, we basically designed a study around protein intake, looking at two different, uh, two different things. Uh, the first one was, does a high protein diet increase muscle mass in non-resistance trained females. So in 2018, my lab did a, um, a very similar study in resistance trained, particular, particularly females who had either competed as in a bodybuilding show or who were planning to do so. And what we found was that higher protein resulted in significantly greater gains of uh, fat-free mass, which that's not surprising, but nobody had ever demonstrated that in a female population before. So now essentially we did a follow-up to that and we, we asked the question, well, what do we see in non-resistance trained females? And then the other question was we, we wanted to say, okay, let's just pretend it does, it is helpful. Can you get the same benefit if you do macro tracking or if you take an intuitive approach where you're not tracking anything, you're just trying to consciously increase protein feeding. So we had three groups. A control group uh, who we said, don't change anything about your diet. And the second group, and by the way, all three groups resistance trained in my lab for eight weeks and everything was supervised. We had another group called the intuitive group or the food group where we said, hey, we want you to just try to double your protein intake. 
Don't write anything down. Don't track anything because we don't want you. We want it to literally be as intuitive as possible. And the way that we helped them was we identified what they would normally eat with protein. And then we just tried, we had coaches that worked with them to say, hey, you normally had two eggs for breakfast on Wednesday mornings. Let's go to four or do this Wednesday and Friday. So again, just trying to naturally or intuitively increase protein. And then the third group was our tracking group. We gave them a goal, one gram of protein or 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. We taught them how to track their macros, gave them a protein intake goal. And we said, hit this goal. So we have a tracking group, an intuitive group, and then a group that just didn't change anything. So um, that, that study we just finished uh, in a few months ago, um, I have not even analyzed that data yet. And then we're going to, um, once they analyze, then we'll start writing that up for publication. Amazing. It's fantastic to hear there's so many exciting things coming out of your lab still and projects that you're working on, keeping us all excited. And again, hopefully gaining some more muscle, uh, losing some more fat. And if we are competitors, yeah. taking to stage and doing better. So uh, it's fantastic. I appreciate all the work you're doing, Bill. And absolutely, once those studies come out, we can talk about those and kind of spread them to the wider world again. And uh, I'm sure everyone appreciates it. So I want to say a massive thank you, Bill, for coming on. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can log your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.